0: This is episode 240 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, On the Trail of the Jackalope with Michael Branch. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, shows, tunes, and mad acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, folks, I have a great treat for you today. I've got Michael Branch with us. So welcome to the show, Mike.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, me too. This will be a fun conversation. We're going to talk about Mike's book, which is called On the Trail of the Jackalope, How a Legend Captured the World's Imagination and Helped Us Cure Cancer. So you can imagine there's a lot to cover today, but I'll start by introducing Mike. He's the uh, professor of literature and environment at the University of Nevada, Reno, where he teaches creative nonfiction, American literature, environmental studies, and film studies. An award-winning writer and humorist, uh, Michael is the author of How to Cuss in Western and lives with his wife and two daughters in the Western Great Basin Desert. Uh, sometimes in town also, on the eastern slope of the Sierra Nevada Range. All right, let's start with some basics. What is a jackalope?
1: Well, I think if you say the word jackalope to most people in the West, they're going to picture that weird little bunny with antlers or horns. And I think probably the two forms that people most often picture the jackalope in are a hoax taxidermy mount, right? Like a bunny that actually goes up on the wall with the antlers, or postcards, which are the oldest form of jackalope kitsch, and they've been around since the 1940s. So the jackalope is a mythical creature whose fame is spread far and wide through stories and also through artifacts like those hoax taxidermy mounts on all of those crazy postcards.
0: Yeah, we'll talk some more about taxidermy because you have Uh, Some really great stories in your book about trying your hand at making those mounts. I first was thinking, I wonder if we could possibly do at least part of the podcast by pretending that jackalopes are real. Because there's something about that, right, that that really fires up our imagination. Uh, But tell us first where we're likely to see a jackalope.
1: Well, I'll respond to the first part of what you said. Um, You know, as part of this project, I talk to people all the time who can absolutely keep a straight face and we have extended conversations about jackalopes. And sometimes it does happen in the middle of an interview where somebody will suddenly say, instead of, you know, where did this mythic creature come from? They'll say, you know, how many species and subspecies of jackalopes are there? (laughs) And of course, I just roll with it. So part of the fun of the gag is exactly that, that in conversation, you can move back and forth between the imaginary and the real. And I love the way the jackalope kind of helps us negotiate that liminal zone between Mm. the hard and fast world and the world of the imagination. So anytime you want to lapse into that, I'm fine. I, I love doing that too. Well, I think, you know, in the West, now we're seeing jackalopes everywhere. Originally, it would have been those hoax taxidermy mounts and things like postcards. But Uh, Part of what got me interested in the project was everywhere I went, I saw not only bumper stickers and T-shirts, but tattoos and, you know, beers that were named after jackalopes and sports teams and bars and restaurants. And, you know, I was interested not only in how we came to tell stories about this amazing creature, but also, you know, what is the mechanism that allowed it to be disseminated so widely in popular culture. So part of what I'm really interested in in the book is not just the thing itself, but how it spreads through the culture, both through storytelling and through these artifacts.
0: Yeah, I remember. It's funny how you get sucked into these things, right? I remember we were doing a cross-country trip. We were taking the northern route, and so we were traveling through South Dakota, And so you start seeing signs for Wall Drug, probably hundreds of miles away from Wall Drug itself, the actual drugstore. And my first reaction was like, no way. You know, well, first, well, that's a detour around that tourist trap, right? And then as we kept traveling, I don't know if I got curious or my sort of, I don't know. I just got sucked in, right? And I started thinking, oh, that'd be fun. We should stop in there and just see what's happening. And sure enough, the wall drug place, the actual drugstore, also has a huge statue of a jackalope in front of it. But tell us the relationship between a jackalope and wall drug
1: well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned those Wall Drug signs because, um, you know, I went up to Wall, which is a little tiny town in South Dakota. And in the summer, when Wall Drug is going strong, the population of the town roughly doubles just with people who work at Wall Drug. It's it's the North America's greatest emporium of roadside junk. I mean, it's just really, <laughs> really fun. So I went up there to interview the Houston family who own that place because wall drug was one of the first places where jackalopes were sold. We're able to trace it back at least 70 years. And my suspicion is it goes back further. But I learned a lot of neat things about the family and about the history of that institution. And two things about those signs. Uh, one is that those are all wooden signs, and they're still hand-painted by artists. The family believes that it's part of their job to help keep artists in business. And the other is that They don't allow billboards along the highways in South Dakota anymore. Those are grandfathered in from a long, long time ago. Oh, So even those crazy signs along the highway are sort of part of this, Mm -hmm. you know, this larger context that's really fun. Yeah, a lot of people associate the jackalope with Waldrug, again, just because it was one of the earliest commercial outlets for those crazy uh, mounts. And you mentioned that jackalope statue at Waldrug. The Husted family told me that every, every summer, at least once... Somebody will get up on the back of that jackalope with their girlfriend and propose marriage. So this has become oh. this has become a tradition <laughs> to get engaged on the wall drug jackalope.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, how cool! <laughs> That's hilarious.
1: and you know when you talk to the family, you know what's the connection between wall drug and jackalopes? The way they explain it is, you know, we're strange and weird and unusual and unique. We do things nobody else does. And we just think the jackalope is the perfect sort of mascot for that idea of imagination, wildness, hybridity, weirdness. Uh, and if you've ever been in Wall Drug, it's quite an experience. I mean, yeah. it's a very strange place and a and a wonderful place in a way.
0: Mm-hmm. It's enormous for one thing. Yeah, for our listeners. Uh, If you haven't been there, it's really huge. And when I was there, it was very crowded. We must have been there in summer. But yeah, I'd have to say, I mean, obviously people make their own choices. But even if you're a skeptic like me at the (laughs) beginning, you may find that, yeah, you actually really enjoy it. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, Americana and Americans. Uh, But first, I want to talk about just rabbits, because there's also... A bunch of humor that just goes with rabbits. Of course, the first thing I think of is Monty Python and the Holy of Grail. Course. With it, yeah, of course, what? yeah. Watch out for that rabbit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's, just, it's just a harmless buddy. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I just took a quick look at that. Where yeah, they're all standing behind a fortified wall, looking at this little white buddy there, but telling each other how dangerous the thing was. And I saw a ad for a t-shirt. Just recently, which said something like Your chances of being killed by a rabbit are low, but not zero. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, you know, as a humor writer, I'm really attracted to rabbits because the the main dynamic in all humor is incongruity, right? Two yeah. things that don't fit together. Mm-hmm. So when you picture a rabbit, you think of something harmless and cute and innocent. And that's why, of course, the, the Monty Python gag works so well is the incongruity there is the cuteness and sweetness and innocence of a rabbit combined with this idea of this murderous animal. And by the way, there's a bunch of that stuff. Uh, in jackalope folklore, especially some of the older stories. So the old timers will say like, well, you know, there used to be this giant species of jackalope and it attacked wagon trains and homesteads. And, uh, you know, frontiersmen when they hunted jackalopes would always wear lengths of stovepipe on their legs. So they <laughs> didn't get dreaded by these vicious jackalopes who attacked them. So yeah, a lot of the the humor that goes with rabbits has to do with that incongruity. And actually, Jennifer, that's one of the things that attracted me to the jackalope mount in the first place is I see it as a kind of satire, a kind of commentary on a hunting trophy mount, right? Like imagine a wall full of those heads that seem to say, hey, I'm a big strong dude because I was able to kill all these animals. But the minute you put a jackalope up there with it, it's just an ironic commentary on all of that, right? And so I, I love the way that little rabbit um, is so cute and sweet, but a little bit like the python rabbit, it takes on all of these other kind of manifestations as soon as people start telling stories about it or making art about it.
0: So let's talk about the Americana aspect of jackalopes because, that. well, f- first, let me say for my readers, I really think you would enjoy this book. There, There's a lot in it. Mike has done a lot of research in it. So there's a lot of detail and interesting things. But, but really, primarily, the book is just fun. There's something optimistic and hopeful when we think about the history of the United States and Americana, the things that we think of for the Wild West, tall tales and storytelling. And so... I think he would just really enjoy that part of it. Was there was there something in there that appealed to you, Mike, or is it something I'm forgetting on that aspect of the jackalope?
1: No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, I think the jackalope is a lot like the American West in the sense that it just embodies this sense of possibility. And I do think there's a link between all of these crazy stories about jackalopes and the actual landscape. And the way I think about it is you know, the way I put this sometimes is if you want to have wild thoughts, you have to have wild places. Ah. So so you look out over the Great Basin Desert, for example, it is so expansive. It's so wild. It's so uninhabited that there's part of your brain that says, well, yeah, you know, so many amazing and magical things exist out there. Why not a jackalope? And Mm. so, you know, it's kind of the Bigfoot argument. I'm I'm less interested Mm. in Bigfoot, but I'm more interested in having huge temperate forest wildernesses that make our imaginations wonder what could be out there. So, you know, when we have wild places, we have wild imagination. And I think that it's not an accident that the jackalope came out of the American West, because we have those vast landscapes that I think really inspire our imaginations.
0: There are even some songs about the jackalopes and um because of your book i went and looked at the music video uh, that the okie dokie brothers of course they're called the okie dokie <laughs> brothers right and um yeah and some of their lyrics are really funny so in the music video the musicians are on a hunt for the jackalopes so they're you know creeping around uh, with their with their net ready to snare a hare so to speak speak and then they have some really great lines in there they talk about how hard it is to find and hunt a jackalope and one of the lines is it's almost like it don't exist at all (laughs) and there's another one about you don't need proof if it's the thing that gives you hope So that was quite interesting. Yeah. And so any comments about that song or any other songs?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, part of what's so neat about the Jackalope is that it's inspired all of this art. I mean, Mm -hmm. filmmakers, visual artists, storytellers, computer game designers, um, you name it. And so there are lots and lots of songs about the Jackalope. And I, I actually made a publicly available Spotify playlist called On the Trail of the Jackalope that has about 100 of those songs but you've picked the one that's my very favorite. The Okie Dokie Brothers, these guys, you know, they're Grammy award-winning musicians. They're the real deal. And when I interviewed Joe Maylander, who is one of the two main uh, guys about that song, um, he was just, it was was interesting. I mean, he was quite profound and philosophical about it. And he did talk about the role of hope and the role of imagination. But he also... uh, When I asked him, why do you think people love jackalopes, which, as you know from reading the book, Jennifer, every single interview I conduct, the last question is, why do you think people love jackalopes? And over the course of the book, you get to hear all of these really different ideas about why the jackalope is so beloved. But anyway, one of Joe's answers to that question was that he loved as a musician, he loved the idea of the jackalope's hybridity. And he said, you know, music is about taking inspiration from different kinds of traditions and putting them together in new ways. And so he loved that idea that the jackalope is hybrid. And he also said, and isn't that a neat way to think about, because you asked about Americana, Mm -hmm. Joe said, isn't that a neat way to think about our country, that we take all of these strange different things, put them together in unlikely combinations and out of it come magical things. You know, now that answer to the question, why do people love jackalopes was very different from other answers I got, but that was exactly the fun of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, kids especially just love that song and that video, because kids, I think, and we grownups, they operate more comfortably in that zone between the real and the imaginary. And so, uh, you know, I think that's, part of what the jackalope does for us is kind of keeps alive that hopeful and imaginative part of our kid brain that believes that almost anything is possible. So just a real quick story that was fun. I did the National Book Festival in Washington, D.C. not too long ago, and I talked to hundreds of kids that day.
0: Oh yeah.
1: So I decided I would, to let the kids participate, I made a tally that said, do you believe that jackalopes exist? And there was yes and no, and then every kid could come up and make their mark. And at the end of the day, the number of kids who who wanted to say, yes, jackalopes exist uh, was something like 120 to three. I mean, <gasps> it, it was just universal. And and sometimes these little kids, you know, I wrote the book on this, these little kids would you know, start giving me these wonderful, spontaneous natural history lectures about jackalopes. They're asking me, well, (laughs) did you know sometimes they have horns and sometimes they have antlers? And did you know they're really fast? And, you know, I mean, the kids just ran with it without hesitation. Uh, That's part of what inspires me about the story is just the way it does buoy us. It gives us hope and it reinforces our imagination and keeps alive that kind of kid-like part of our brains.
0: You know, that's funny. Yeah, these are the kind of topics where I can wax pretty patriotic, actually. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, I do think the United States is a really interesting history as a country. And you're right, I'd never thought of that before. But that's a lo- this is true of the United States. We have all kinds of weird, almost contradictory elements in the right. country. And as you say, that's, you know, that's inherent to a jackalope, especially a mounted jackalope on the wall as a hunting trophy. I mean, the sort of the meta layers and all that. Exactly. You You can get lost in for sure. But, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I I think is what makes our country really great. And that's another thing that I notice about Americans is that often they have a very good sense of humor. And humor, in a lot of ways, is what binds us together, right? So, yeah, it, I, th- there's a lot going on with that little jackalope.
1: Oh, I I really agree. And you know, as a humor writer myself, it's not only that I like to laugh and I like to help other people laugh, but you know, humor is universal to every culture in the world. That's not the case with most things. You know, we we marry differently, we eat differently, we bury our dead differently, but we've never discovered a culture, ancient or modern, indigenous or settler, that didn't have humor. There's something about it that is part of who we are as a species. But I agree that, especially in the American West, we have a particular kind of Mm -hmm. tongue-in-cheek, tall tale land-based humor that i think is really wonderful and i think that when the news gets harder and harder to listen to in the morning we have to have some place we can go to to reinforce our connections to each other and to the land and for me humor really plays that role
0: yeah. So I'll just mention again to my listeners, you know, this is why I think you would enjoy this book. So the book is called On the Trail of the Jackalope, and it's by uh, Michael Brandt, who's we're very fortunate to have with us here today. So you actually tried your hand at taxidermy. <laughs> so yeah, tell us all about that, because as you get into the weeds on this, it just becomes more and more unbelievable. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so tell us about how that happened.
1: Oh, it was such an incredible experience experience. I mean, I'm not a hunter and I'm not a taxidermist, but I knew that to understand the story of the jackalope, I would have to learn more about taxidermy. So I actually, you know, I made a pilgrimage out to Wyoming and the Dakotas, and I interviewed the people who I consider, a number of people who I consider to be among the most important or influential jackalope makers. And I wanted to understand their craft, how they get into it, what it meant to them. So that's part of the book. And it was really a fun experience. But then when I was almost done with this book, I really felt like I had been all over the country interviewing people. I had done archival research. I had read everything I could. It suddenly dawned on me that I had left one stone unturned, that I had not tried to make a jackalope myself. So <laughs> so I decided, okay, I have to do this for the sake of the book. Um, and I figured where am I going to find somebody to teach me how to make a jackalope? I'm sure I'll end up back out in Wyoming. The only place in the country I could find a jackalope making workshop was in the Mission District of San Francisco. So I spent an amazing amount of money and a whole day hanging out with these hipsters in San Francisco and making a taxidermy jackalope. Now, what was really profound about the experience was the other people in my workshop, none of whom I knew, you know, they were all there for very different reasons. Oh. And over the course of eight hours, we really got to know each other well. But but the most fun thing about the experience for me was that I was terrible at it. I was awful.
0: <laughs> I think you mentioned something about, yeah, appearing like a stroke victim.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I was awful. And here I had been studying this thing nonstop. And, you know, I'm a teacher. I like to think I'm pretty patient and supportive of my students. But the guy who taught this taxidermy class, he just kept saying, Mike, you're the worst. You're the worst ever. So in front of everybody. And I want to clarify, not just today, ever. You're the worst taxidermy student I've ever had. And he just kept making me get up out of my chair so he could try to fix all my mistakes. And So it turned out, as a humorist, it was kind of low-hanging fruit because As a terrible student, it just became so funny over the course of the day, Uh, but it also gave me a new appreciation for how difficult it actually is to do this well, and it made me reflect back on my conversations with some of these influential jackalope makers, each of whom has their own unique style, Mm -hmm. uh, and to learn more about why this craft mattered to them, and then to realize in trying it myself that it's it's way harder than it looks, and to Mm -hmm. do it really well is extremely difficult. So I had a great time. I made friends with all of these people in the workshop and we had such a good time together. Uh, But the fact that I was so bad at it just kept me laughing all day long. And uh, it was a neat way to cap. And and that is the final chapter of the book because it sort of caps my own journey of Mm. trying to track this phenomenon of the jackalope through the culture. You know, the final logical step of that sort of mythic journey for me was to You know, get my hands in there myself.
0: As I say, for me, it was fairly mind blowing to discover that there was even a workshop (laughs) for that, which again, you know, just makes you realize. And I mean, there's a workshop and people came, like many people came. Right. Um, It sells out every
1: time, apparently. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's very popular.
0: Yeah. Which is so interesting, right? Which just shows how many people. Appreciate the jackalope, right? And so tell us there are some very serious taxidermists who address the issue of making a proper mount of a jackalope that you can hang on your wall. Um, So tell us what materials they usually use.
1: Well, you know, it depends. There's sort of two schools, as it turns out, among taxidermists. And one school, sort of the old school, the traditional folks, they not only use actual rabbits and actual deer antlers, but okay. the pur- but the purists among them won't outsource any part of the process. In other words, they literally go out and hunt a rabbit. They literally go out and hunt a deer and they use those materials for what is essentially an, an old school homespun, you know, American folk artifact. And the process of making the jackalope is pretty complex, and it's quite specific to different makers use very different techniques. Then there's a whole nother sort of more modern school of taxidermists, and they're sometimes referred to as rogue taxidermy or (laughs) alternative taxidermy. And these are people who are really concerned about animal ethics. So they want to make stuff, but they don't want their art to be the cause of any animal being killed. So they will work with roadkill, they'll work with vintage materials. And they do really interesting and beautiful work, but they um, really care about how the animals are sourced. Because one of the things that I learned in that workshop when I made my own jackalope, even though it was very, very funny and humbling, you know, I, I kind of meditated the book on the fact that, it, you know, an actual jackalope mount still does require the life of an animal. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's something I wanted to think more deeply about. Uh, but it's important to remember, too, that for every jackalope mount, there's a thousand T-shirts and ten thousand postcards and a hundred shot glasses, right? So, um, not to mention paintings and songs and film and comic books. So, I do think it's important to remember that 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 actual taxidermy mount that was what came first.
0: Yeah. But
1: but mm-hmm. Good since point. then, there are a lot of people who are not interested in hunting or taxidermy who see that iconic horned rabbit as a source of inspiration for all kinds of art. That deviates in lots of ways from how an old school taxidermist might once have approached this.
0: Okay, so let's uh, step into uh, a big topic, which is uh, horned rabbits. Or I noticed in one of your blurbs, a person referred to it as a horned rabbit, (laughs) which I loved, (laughs) which again just adds to the mystique, yeah, the horned rabbit. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Tell us about horned rabbits.
1: Okay, so this is the big reveal in the book is that after celebrating, you know, this iconic part of American folklore, uh, in the middle of the book, I make a hard turn and say, Hey, but guess what? This imaginary creature actually exists. And, you know, what do you mean by that? How can a jackalope exist? Well, horned rabbits, so called horned rabbits, actually exist in nature. And they're real rabbits in the natural world who uh, develop these very unusual growths on their head as a result of a viral infection. And those growths can look, I mean, they essentially are horns. They're not as stylized as a jackalope's horns, but they certainly are suggestive of it. So, In the middle of the book, I say, wait a minute now, we just had all this fun with these horned rabbits that exist only in our imagination and in folklore, but whoops, they actually exist in the natural world. And in this part of the book, I go on to tell the really amazing science story of how the study of these horned rabbits led indirectly, but I trace this out in the book, to the development of the human papillomavirus vaccine. So the safest, most effective anti-cancer vaccine we have ever created would not exist without horned rabbits. And so, you know, there's just layers and layers and layers to the jackalope story. But one of the most important of those layers, and it was a story that, you know, that was untold, was this connection between the joke jackalope of the American West and the real horned rabbit in nature, which has been so important to saving millions of lives through the development of this wonderful vaccine. So it's quite a leap, but that's what rabbits do. That's what writers do. So it was really fun to go from those jackalope mounts and all the humor they inspire to this also inspiring, serious story of how real life horned rabbits uh, have helped us to, to protect our families.
0: Yeah. So, just to uh, in case people are kind of wondering. So, this is the you've probably heard of it, the HPV vaccine. That yeah, as Mike says, uh, as far as I know, you know, it's very widely administered and seems to be very effective. I mean, it's just a tremendous vaccine success story. Uh, but you, may, but the audience may know it as HPV. Mm-hmm. So this is related to the work of Dr. Shope. So tell us about him.
1: Oh, this was so wonderful, Jennifer. This is such a great, I mean, being a writer is endlessly fascinating to me because mm-hmm. it's always a process of discovery. You, you set out to do something and you end up taking lots of other trails. So I, I asked myself the question, okay, who was the first person to actually get interested enough to study these real horned rabbits in nature? And it turns out that it's, it's Dr. Shope, who was a famous virologist in the 1930s. And we've all heard, I'm sure, during the COVID pandemic about the global pandemic of 1918, yeah. which killed between 50 and 100 million people. This was the guy who figured out what caused that. It took him 18 years, but mm. he was the one who figured it out. So um, Dr. Shope was at the Rockefeller Institute in Princeton, but he had grown up you know, as a rural kid in Iowa. And his friends in Iowa started telling him, you know, when we go out hunting, sometimes we shoot these rabbits and they have these weird growths. Mm -hmm. And so Shope put the word out in Kansas and Iowa that he wanted hunters to start essentially mailing him these rabbits to Princeton. And in 1932, at his lab bench in Princeton, he started studying these horned rabbits. And it was his work that created the breakthroughs that ultimately would lead to the HPV vaccine. In particular, what Shope was able to prove in his study of these horned rabbits was the fact that a virus could cause cancer in a mammal, which doesn't sound like a big deal to us today. But in the 1930s, the scientific mm-hmm. and medical community said, hey, you know, cancer isn't contagious. There's no way that, that a cancer could be caused by a virus. We now know that about 10% of global cancer deaths each year are caused by viruses. And I tell the story in the book of just the amazing ingenuity that Shope used to devise these experiments that ultimately would prove that those weird growths on the rabbit's heads were not only caused by a virus, but that they also uh, could be cancerous. And that was what really opened the door Mm -hmm. to subsequent research. And it's just an amazing story of how one person... Who was devoted to his intellectual curiosity, mm-hmm. stuck with something long enough to create what amounted to, you know, an epic medical breakthrough.
0: Mm-hmm. We do get a sense of uh, what Dr. Shope is like in the book. He seems like a really admirable character. There's some prizes that some of his associates won. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Well, in terms of Shope the, the person, um, part of what's fun about being you know, a super nerdy, obsessive, you know, writer type is that you go anywhere you have to go to get the story. So I had been reading all these um, science articles published in the 1930s, I'd studied up on Shope's biography to the degree I could. But I felt like I was still missing pieces. And ultimately, I was able to track down his two surviving children who are both in their mid 80s now. And Tom and Nancy Shope both became friends of mine. And yeah, and I, over time, as they came to trust me, they shared with me all of this unpublished material, letters that Shope had written during the 20s and 30s and 40s, unpublished photographs and journals. So working together with Shope's kids, I was able to get the missing pieces I needed to become sort of the first person ever to be able to tell this story. And it's been really fun too. I've been on the road with this book all spring and summer and fall. I've done about 53 events all over the West. And it's not uncommon when I'm at an event to have somebody say, I'm here because Richard Shope was my grandfather, was my great uncle, was my great grandfather. And so the Shope family is really pleased with the fact that working together, I was finally able to tell the story of, you know, how his work on these horned rabbits ultimately saved lots of lives. So you had asked about the researchers who followed in his footsteps. Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: it's quite noticeable in the book. I mean, it, it yeah, it's striking in the book.
1: Typically, science gets moved forward incrementally through the cooperation of lots of people, sometimes people who don't even know each other. Mm-hmm. So it did take several generations of researchers to get from you know, Shope with those horned rabbits on his lab bench in Princeton in 1932 to the development of their vaccine. It required several generations of researchers, each of whom built on uh, the earlier researchers work. So the people who picked up uh, the work from Richard Shope after he died of cancer actually won the Nobel Prize in medicine for their work uh, because it was becoming increasingly clear to people at that point uh, that understanding viruses as a cause of cancer was going to be a huge breakthrough area. And you've mentioned, Jennifer, the HPV vaccine. There are lots and lots of cancers, different kinds of cancers that are caused by HPV, including, by the way, lots of oral cancers. And it's important to to let your listeners know too, that uh, we tend to associate cervical cancer with HPV because nearly all cervical cancers are caused by HPV. And so many times we have the impression that the HPV vaccine is only for uh, for girls and women, Uh, but because oral cancers and many other kinds of cancers that are caused by HPV can strike men and women, uh, this is a vaccine that is recommended for everybody.
0: Are there other people who have used these horned rabbits for other applications? Have have these horned rabbits been useful for other things?
1: Well, uh, scientifically, I would say the, the main drive was the drive to use horned rabbits to show the relationship between viruses and cancer. But part of what's really neat uh, that I didn't know until I did all the work on the book is that Horned rabbits, um, of course, they exist in nature, as I've mentioned, and in the medieval and Renaissance periods throughout most cultures of Europe, the actual horned rabbit in nature was observed often enough that it appeared in lots of natural histories, in other words, like early science textbooks, so much so that, uh, yeah, so much so that it was actually taxonomized as a species this was a mistake of course but oh. it was co- it was called lepus cornutus which in Latin <laughs> oh, of mean,
0: course it was <laughs> yeah the rabbit
1: with the <laughs> crown right and so there are Natural history manuscripts that emerge you know in the Renaissance for example there's a term for Lepus cornutus there's a term for the horned rabbit in German and Dutch and French and Spanish and Italian and so throughout uh, oh, the wow. pu- cultures of old Europe, the actual horned rabbit was viewed as a distinct species, and it's represented in all these natural history texts. And I put some of these illustrations uh, in the book. So where I'm headed with this is the horned rabbit actually exists in the folklore and mythology of cultures from around the world. So Mm. indigenous peoples in the American Southwest, in Mexico, throughout old Europe. As I mentioned, there are lots of folktales about horned rabbits that emerge from different African peoples, And the rabbit is really important to the cultures of Asia. So Korea, Japan, Mm. China all have sort of special spiritual status for the rabbit. So for example, when we look at the full moon and we see that ambiguous pattern of shadow and we call it the man in the moon, throughout Asia, that's the hare in the moon. When they look at the moon, they see a rabbit. And I've even found three ancient Buddhist sutras. These are religious texts that are thousands of years old, three different Buddhist sutras in which the Buddha himself uses the horned rabbit as a teaching tool. So when you talk about, when you ask me about, you know, are there other applications? It's important to kind of broaden our lens that, you know, we're not talking only about science, but also about the role that the horned rabbit plays in the folklore and the spiritual lives of people from around the world. Um, And in the book, I tell some really fun stories of, you know, how the, how the horned rabbit gets used in these cultures. And I'm going to tell you one just really quickly. In Germany alone, there are three or four different versions of the horned rabbit, and they have different names in different regions, and each of those regions has its own tradition. Well, in Bavaria, which is the heavily forested part of Germany, they have a special kind of horned rabbit, uh, all of their own, and uh, that rabbit has wings, as oh. well as, as well as antlers. Cool. And yeah. And in Bavaria, you know, there's a whole rite of passage ritual for young people when they become a certain age, and, and their rabbit is called a vulpertinger. So I interviewed Bavarians about this. It was so fun and hilarious. They said, Oh, yeah, you know, we take the Volpertinger very seriously. We have one day of the year where we all take off of school and work and we just celebrate, and the kids dress up like horned rabbits and all this stuff. And they said, we also have a very deliberate rite of passage tradition. And it, it goes like this. When a kid gets to be about 13 or 14, they say, all the hunters in the village come and say, okay, it's your turn to really become one of us now. But to do that, you have to capture a Volpertinger and we've all done it, but now it's your turn and we'll help you, but it's going to take some courage. And so they march this kid out to uh, on a moonlit night. They take the kid out into a field in the middle of the forest And they leave him there with a stick and a sack. And they say, okay, now this is where you're going to capture the Volpertinger. Now we're going to help you. We're all going to go out into the forest and we're going to scare the Volpertingers toward you. And then, of course, they all just go back to the hunting lodge and drink. And, (laughs) you know, the whole gag is how long will it take before this kid standing alone in this field in the forest realizes that the joke's on him. After which he comes back to the hunting lodge and far from being made fun of when he comes in you know, it's a celebration because that kid has now moved from the world of people who don't know about the vulpertinger to those who do, just as all of us at one point in our lives didn't know that the jackalope was a gag. We we had to discover it somehow. But it was really such a sweet story because Mm -hmm. it helped me to understand that when something like the jackalope or the Volpertinger functions as a hoax, You know, we understandably think of the hoax in such a negative way that it deprives somebody of something or it exploits them in some way. Uh, But hoaxing is thousands of years old, and often it's a powerful community-building tool because it marks the magical barrier between the inside and the outside of a community. Once you're in on the jackalope joke, you're, you're part of a group of us who share that and enjoy it together. And the same is true when this kid discovers that the Volpertinger was something that the older hunters in his or her community sort of perpetuated, and now they're in on the gag, now they'll participate in helping the next kid to have that same experience. And and there are many other examples around the world, but I just wanted to emphasize uh, for your listeners that part of what the horned rabbit does is scientific, and part of what it does is cultural. And to the degree that it functions culturally, it's often in bringing people together in some way.
0: That is really fascinating because for the boy, or maybe they also do it with girls, you start out with this idea of I'm going to show everyone I'm a man by killing something and bringing back this trophy, this demonstration of my brawn and wits. And instead, the person is out there thinking. (laughs) and so it's really fascinating to put yourself in the shoes of that person as the hours go by you're thinking and thinking and thinking and that's actually where the learning is right that's so that's so amazing
1: jennifer that is such a beautiful and insightful way to put it i just love i love the way you put that and and I, i think we could go even further right and say that The trophy that comes out of these rituals is a story. And I love that idea of narrative as trophy. In other words, you know, what is the ultimate conquest? It's to have an experience where you come out with a narrative. You know, storytelling is one of our oldest technologies as a species. We're hardwired for it. And it's stories that bind us together. It's stories that bind us to the land. And I love the way these imaginary animals, including these horned rabbits from cultures around the world what they generate is stories. And those stories function as a social glue. Mm-hmm. As in the instance of the Bavarians, right? It's the story of the Volpertinger that brings them together, not the Volpertinger itself. It only exists as an artifact of the collective imagination. And I just love that idea that part of what brings us together are things that don't exist,
0: mm-hmm. they exist
1: only in the narratives that we choose to share. And I, as a storyteller myself, I just find that idea really powerful.
0: I want to talk about Tall Tales since <laughs> I you know obviously that's related to the Jackalope, but you're an expert in storytelling and tall tales, and you even include a tall tale <laughs> in your book. This strikes me as something that's again sort of quintessentially American. Um, so yeah, can you give us some background about the tall tale?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it is true that there are versions of tall tales around the world, but our our strain of tall tales here in the States, it really is uniquely American. And by the way, tall tales go back to the founding of the Republic. One of the greatest of the early tall tale tellers was Ben Franklin. And he loved to pull the wool over the eyes of these European readers who thought they were better than us, right? The, and tall tales, oh. are, tall tales almost always punch up at a cultural elite. They're used to oh. essentially say hey, you think you're so smart? You think you're better than we are? Well, I'm going to make you fall for something and then you're going to be embarrassed and you'll see that I'm going to give you a big dose of humility. And Ben Franklin loved to tell these stories at the expense of his European readers. And he would write these pieces that sounded really credible and really scientific and they appeared in these European newspapers and people would read them and they took them as gospel truth. And Franklin loved this. My One of my very favorites is he wrote a piece that, you know, this was published in the London Daily Advertiser, major London newspaper. And it was Franklin explaining, oh, hey, you know, you Europeans probably don't understand this, but in America, the whales will pursue bait fish up into the rivers, and sometimes they'll come hundreds of miles up up rivers in pursuit of these bait fish. And so incrementally, he's like pulling their leg more and more and more. And by the way, that's part of the dynamic of a tall tale. You always start with really small fibs that are blended with lots of credible information, and then you just see how far you can stretch it. So in this wonderful piece, Franklin ultimately ends up saying... You know, the grand leap of the whale up the falls of Niagara is among the greatest spectacles in nature. So, I mean, <laughs> never mind the fresh water. I mean, we're supposed to believe a whale can jump 180 feet up a waterfall. But, you know, people believe some of this stuff. And so just as people like Franklin used the tall tale as an American form to essentially humble a European elite, now you move forward in time into the 19th century. And that same relationship exists between the American West and the East. Now it's, you know, New York and Boston and Philadelphia that are the cultural elite and it's frontiersmen in the American West who are perceived as bumpkins. And so the reason the tall tale flourishes in the American West is essentially Westerners are using it to fool these elite Easterners. and. And that dynamic, by the way, is still in play. I I start the book by going to Douglas, Wyoming, which was the little town in Wyoming where the first jackalope mount was made back in the 30s. And I interview a bunch of people there, and one of them was the mayor of the town. And so the mayor of Douglas said, oh, yeah, I go to these mayor's conferences in D.C., and I just hand out postcards of jackalopes, and I invite all these mayors to come jackalope hunting with me in Wyoming. And I said, seriously, do they fall for that? And he said, hey, it's D.C. They don't know anything about Wyoming. And he loved this, right? I mean, he's still perpetuating. He's using the jackalope tall tale as a hoax at the expense of the Eastern elite. And the way the mayor put it to me, which I thought was so charming and so perfect, is he said, we're a whole town with an inside joke and we're all in on it. But a lot of other people aren't. So I, I love the way the tall tale exaggerates the American land and exaggerates the American character. Everything's somehow sort of bigger than life. Um, but I also love the way the tall tale is used not only to give pleasure to people who are in the know, but also to kind of gently poke a little fun at the people who think they know better. And so the the tall tale is so amusing and entertaining, but it also has this cultural function Mm -hmm. that I think is really fun, too.
0: Yeah, as we're talking, I just keep thinking more about kind of the reputation of the United States and especially the American West, where it is so big. If you come from a European country, it's really astonishing when you first come to the United States how dang big this country is. Yeah. And it does have some really, really unusual things, you know, natural. A phenomena that that are that are quite mind blowing, really. Yeah. But also, there's you know this whole idea of the American dream, where anything is possible, and yeah, you can achieve things that you never could achieve in your home country. There's something, yeah, it's so wrapped up in all this reputation and culture about America.
1: I, I was just going to say, I love the way you put that because. The idea right is that anything is possible here mm-hmm. and that's true both of the natural world and of what we can make of ourselves that idea of, of possibility and so just as an example when you know when European naturalists were told things like oh there are flocks of passenger pigeons so huge that they darken the skies or there are herds of bison so huge that you can feel the earth thundering beneath your feet. Or let me tell you about a hummingbird, or let me tell you about a white pelican, or right, it goes on and on that the American land was full of so many things that seemed impossible, and yet actually were true, Mm -hmm. that the idea of a jackalope doesn't seem very outrageous by comparison. Mm -hmm. And so I do think the jackalope, just as you say, Jennifer, is part of that American tradition of believing that here anything is possible.
0: Yeah, there's a, um, I think there's a line in your book that somebody said, jackalopes, if they, if they were real, it would be so cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah this idea that you know it's there's a sort of a yearning for that world in which a jackalope could live yeah. right and and I think you know having that kind of inspiration for a people is really important right that there is potential that the future is bright you know that there's that there's hope that we don't know everything it's it's almost like exploring space Right. This uh, this idea of, yeah, we just don't know what's out there. And if that were true, that would be so cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's happened plenty of times before where we heard about animals that seemed too outrageous to be real and they turned out to be real. And, you know, especially in an age of biodiversity loss, I think it's really encouraging and inspiring to remember that new species are being discovered every day. Mm -hmm. And I won't be the guy to say the next one we discover will be a jackalope. But I like the idea that the jackalope reminds us of a world of possibility beyond our daily lives. And I think we all need that.
0: Yeah, it sort of creates a child's mind, right? Where children, they don't know. So things do seem sort of equally plausible because there are so many things that are just, yeah, crazy. But Yeah. yeah, it encourages us to have that child's mind where things are, that we don't know everything and things are possible. So I'll have to finish up here with a question that you asked everyone. Uh, so why do you think people <laughs> love jackalope so much? Uh,
1: well, uh, you know, I think there are lots and lots of answers to that question. And that's why I wrote the book is that there was no simple way to answer it. But I guess if I had to offer what I think is the best umbrella observation for for all of it, it's that the jackalope helps to keep present in our daily lives something that is emerging from the imagination. I mean, ultimately, this book is kind of less about rabbits and more about human imagination. And I love the idea that, you know, jackalopes exist because we need them to exist. Mm-hmm. If there wasn't part of our human mind that needed to engage with the imagination and engage with possibility, these stories wouldn't be retold, this thing would simply vanish from the culture. The reason it doesn't go extinct is because it it helps to keep alive and celebrate the human imagination, which I think is just a huge part of what we need to rely on for wisdom, not just what we know, but what's still possible. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you for writing the book. It really is lovely. Um, And I haven't had a chance to read some of your other books, but I suspect that they're, you know, very high quality also. Um, So, yeah, for my listeners, don't forget to look at uh, Michael Branch's other books as well. I especially am interested in the How to Cuss in Western book. (laughs) So, yeah, thank you for writing the book. I think it's really lovely. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience?
1: Um, Sure. But I wanted to say first, Jennifer, how fun it's been to talk with you. And part of what's been especially, this is my 10th book, but part of what's been really, really fun about this one is it's not just an occasion for me to tell other people's stories, but they tell me stories back. And there were a bunch of times in our chat where you reflected some insight back in a way that I thought was really profound and helped to open my own sense of the, of the book. So thank you for that. It's been so uh, fun to talk with you and I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. I would just invite your readers uh, and listeners to check out my website, michaelbranchwriter.com. And there you'll find information about uh, lots of my work, including links to many, many essays um, for free. And my last three books before On the Trail of the Jackalope were Raising Wild, Rants from the Hill, and How to Cuss in Western. Those are all humor books, and they're all books that engage with the landscape. And your readers uh, might be interested in that. And those three books, as well as On the Trail of the Jackalope, are also all four available in audiobooks for people Mm -hmm. who prefer that way of experiencing their storytelling. So michaelbranchwriter.com. And uh, thank you so much again for making time to have the horned bunny on.
0: <laughs> yeah, the horned bunny the horned bunny it sounds watch,
1: fancy right away doesn't it
0: yeah watch out for that horned bunny
1: <laughs>
0: thank you so much Mike I really appreciate it thank
1: you Jennifer it's been a real treat
0: thanks everybody for listening we really appreciate it don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.